0: It's good to be back in the pulpit after a little break this summer. This morning, I'm thinking about that game show, Family Feud. Remember that show? You know, they do massive surveys, and a question is asked, and two families guess what the top answer might have been for that question, and then they unveil whether or not it's on the board and how high it up is. And they want to get the number one answer that people would have for the question. Now, I was imagining a Family Feud game where the question was aimed at Christianity, and what if a survey was done that said, what is the number one reason that people give for rejecting Christianity? Now, imagine what your answer would be. Think about it. You huddle up with your family over there, and you you know, confer, and you try to decide, and you, and you give your answer, and then the other team gives their answer, and then they pull up the results. I am pretty sure that one of the top three would be the word hypocrisy, That hypocrisy might be the number one answer, and my guess on number two would be judgment, that Christians are judgmental of others, that those two things would come up as top answers. Now, listen to a definition of what hypocrisy is. It is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. So, So it's a practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Now, this morning, we are nearing the end of our preaching series for this summer called Honest to God, and we have uh, one more sermon next week on that, and then Vision Sunday, and then we're going to go in another um, preaching series for the fall. One of the things I really like about the Bible is that it really does not in any way try to minimize or hide the human condition, but really portrays the situation of the human heart, even among the greatest heroes of the Bible. David has been given a ton of press in the scriptures. So much is written about him, both in the Old and the New Testament. And yet we see in this account with Bathsheba from last week and this week, some real transparency into his problem, into his heart. This is probably, in the entire series of Honest to God, this is probably the most honest moment that we see David have. And I would suggest that it's also the reason that he succeeds. It's the reason that his... Ministry prospers is because of the way that he responds. Now, what's cool about David and what's cool about Samuel, 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel, is we have parallels in, in the Old Testament where there is not only the uh, Samuel writings, but there are the Kings and the Chronicles. So you hear other things from different perspectives. In 1st Kings 15, this is a summary of David's entire ministry, his entire monarchy, his rule. It says, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. A pretty big clause. You might not know this, but Uriah the Hittite is one of his mighty men. In Chronicles, if you if you go to uh, First Chronicles eleven forty, there's a list of about seventy or so men who, at great personal danger and expense, left the the king and King Saul and went out to King or future King David and protected him and hid with him in the caves and defended him and they did incredibly valiant things for him. These were strong leaders. Some of them took on three hundred men at a time, three hundred against one, and were strong enough to to withstand that. One of them was Uriah the Hittite. He's named as a mighty man. And when we think about what Dan preached on last week and how David neglected his duty and then fell into lust and then started coveting and then committed adultery and then committed murder, we think, how could he do that? How could he do that? Uriah was one of his guys. But you see what happens, and we heard last week on the anatomy of sin, is how it snowballs. It progresses. It goes from a small thing into a bigger thing and a bigger thing and a bigger thing. And by the time you're leading the kingdom, you've got all sorts of compromise going on. That's a problem with power. You know, if power corrupts, as they say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And before long, David is thinking to himself, you know, I've got the whole kingdom in mind here and, you know, Uriah, sometimes you have to sacrifice somebody to think of the whole. I don't know how he justified it, but he did. He did this, and he went on and ended up um, murdering one of his mighty men. We don't usually see sin creep in until we look back from the other side of it. Then we can see, oh, it was way back there when I entertained that thought. Or somebody said that thing to me, and then I responded this way, and that opened up a little bit of a foothold for the enemy to exploit. I suspect in David's case it was entitlement. You are now the king of Israel. You are, you've consolidated the kingdom You're powerful. Of course, you deserve it. It's hard to be at the top. Think about all the things that you have to deal with. What's taken a little bit on the side for you? I I know, but you know, you can see how that justification could start happening. But when it happens to us, we don't see that it's happening. It starts to creep in. It's an insidious little thing. And when we find it, when we find that it has crept into our lives, there is only one cure for it. Now, before I tell you what the cure is, I need to caution, because this is a word that we hear a lot in the church. It's a word you're very familiar with, and as they say, familiarity breeds contempt. You can think, oh, I know that word. Yeah, sure, I get it. And Jesus began his public ministry with this word. You know what the word is? Repent. Repent. Jesus started his public ministry by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So if last week we saw an anatomy of sin— This week, I want to present for us an anatomy of repentance and what it is. I was, I'd never heard before that quote that Dan brought from Thomas Cranmer, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and then the mind justifies. But I found it to be really helpful because as I think about the anatomy of repentance, there are three parts to it, the mind and the will and the heart, and then there's a power source. So I want to look at those three parts and then the source of power for true repentance. What God does here is He initiates. When David is finally at the place where he is so consumed with his sin, he's blind to it, God in His mercy sends Nathan. And I think how powerful it is to have a Nathan in our lives that God could use to bring a tough word to us. Do you have a Nathan in your life? A friend that would come and say the hard thing. Maybe even say the hard thing that puts your relationship, your friendship at risk. Prophet Nathan was in danger going to the king. Usually, if you went to the king and pointed something out about his flaws, it was your head on the block. That was usually what happens to the prophets. And yet, Proverbs, Proverbs twenty-seven six says, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy." So, all the people around you that will kiss you and greet you and say you're doing great, you're doing fine, are your enemy, if it's not great and fine what you're doing. But It'll feel like a wound when a friend comes to you and says, very humbly, hopefully, but comes and says, I think you're stepping out of line here. You're in danger here. You can't even see it. That is faithfulness. And Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have a friend in your life like Nathan who would come to you and point something out? God sends Nathan to come, and he brings this story I mean, Nathan wisely doesn't just walk right up and says, God says, you are the man you have sinned. Instead, he thinks, how am I going to approach David? And he comes up with this parable. But David doesn't know it's a parable. David is used to, as the king, sitting in uh, the seat uh, as a judge over Israel. And so he, he's used to hearing different things going on in the kingdom and pronouncing a judgment about it. So Nathan comes and says, there's a certain rich man, lots of sheep and cattle, very rich man. And there's a poor man, and this poor man can only buy one sheep, a little ewe lamb, a small sheep, and he treats it like a pet, and he feeds it, and 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 he holds it in his arms, and it's like a daughter to him. Now, Nathan is so, so skilled at telling this story, and David is so blinded to his situation that I love in the Hebrew, do you know what a bar mitzvah is and a bat mitzvah? Bar means son of, bat means daughter of, of the commandment. Bar and bat. And, and so when he refers to this little lamb that this poor man owns, he treats it like his bat, like his daughter. Do you catch the parallel between bat and Bathsheba? David does not. He doesn't even see that. And he's so high and mighty on his throne that he brings this heavy judgment. It, it says his anger, his anger welled up, and he says, that man deserves to die. Now, actually, for stealing a sheep, death is not the right penalty. And then he says, and repay it fourfold, which is the right penalty. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 22, it says that if a man steals an ox or a sheep, fivefold for the ox, fourfold for the sheep. You have to repay fourfold for the sheep. Not death. It was not a a situation for capital punishment like that. But David is just caught in Nathan's parable, and he's pronounced judgment on himself, and he doesn't even see it. And it's at that point that Nathan says, you are the man. I just love the directness of it. You are the man. What's David going to say? I changed my mind. Not death. Not death. Not death. I take that back. He's so passionate, he's gotten trapped in Nathan's story. That's his situation. Now, what happens? David says, I have sinned. And immediately, Nathan says, the Lord has put your sin away. You will not die immediately, as soon as he repents and says, I've sinned, he gets forgiveness. He experiences God's incredible mercy right there, and it blows us away. There's nothing that happens in between. It's just, I've sinned, and then the Lord has put your sin away. However, there will be consequences of this. There are things that are set in motion that will play out, and they are rough things, but that's what our sin does. It has consequences. That's different than forgiveness. We, we don't just expect the consequences to go away. But David, from that moment on, was forgiven by God and was pure before him. But then there are these problems going to play out in this. So now, I want to jump over to the Psalm 51 reading, which in, in your Bible, at the heading of Psalm 51, there's a little footnote, and it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So specifically, this psalm was written right after this account, right after this interaction with Nathan. It might have even been that very evening. David went back to his bed and just thought of what he had done, and he began to write this psalm, which is one of the most famous psalms. Now, I want to look at the mind, I want to look at the will, and I want to look at the heart from this psalm, and I want to start with verse 4. In verse 4, David prays, against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now we read that and we go, wait a minute. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah the Hittite? What about all of Uriah's men that, that had to fall too in this thing that he did? There was a lot of damage done to other people. But what David understands is that all sin is ultimately sin against the Lord. He has transgressed God's law, and those people also stumbled. He took it to the highest level. He didn't just say, I'm really sorry for the consequences. That's what remorse does. Remorse looks at the consequences and says, ah, I'm really sorry that those things happened. Whereas repentance goes all the way up to the highest level and says, I've sinned against you, God. I have broken your law. This was ultimately way up here. It's even above adultery and murder. It was abuse of power, and it was putting self on the throne where only God can sit. And so, when we think about our mind, he says this it's in your sight that I have sinned. Where do you look for ultimate authority? What are your options? What the scriptures teach is where Christians would say you should look for your authority. But what the world says is things like follow your heart. One of my favorite Bible teachers, Tim Keller, recounts a Beverly Hills 90210 episode where the Tori Spelling character is sleeping with some guy and goes into her pastor for advice and says, what do you think? And he says, only your heart can tell you. Now, that's not true. You can't listen to your heart. Above all things, the heart is deceitful, but people will use their heart as their highest authority. How do I feel about this thing? You know, what's my conscience telling me to do? And the problem with the conscience is that it can be seared. A good conscience can be seared and no longer trustworthy. There are some people who will be able to do horrific things with a clear conscience about it. And then there are others whose conscience is so sensitive that they can do things that their conscience shouldn't be giving them guilt for, and they feel guilty about it. They feel guilty all the time. It's like they're carrying this shame around that makes them confused about what is actually right and wrong. So your conscience can be seared, so you can't trust that for your highest authority. What about human reason and intellect? Some people would reason this, Ugh, that Bible is so old. It's been translated so many times. You can't trust what's in there. And they they would reason that, even though you can. It's the most trustworthy ancient document. It's got manuscript evidence all over the place. I mean, it it is dependable, as dependable as any ancient document could possibly be. Or they would reason this, Well, I know some Christians, and and they don't look anything like Christ, and they're hypocrites. So therefore, all Christians must be hypocrites, right? And there's a fatal flaw in their reasoning that if one Christian is not living up to what he's supposed to do, that all of them are not being honest either. That's human reason and intellect or government. Maybe I should just go with the Supreme Court and what the Constitution says. Well, clearly, if it's legal, does not necessarily make it moral. I don't know if this state will eventually legalize marijuana, but I have a significant moral objection to using drugs to alter your mental state. When the scripture says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the spirit. Just because it's legal doesn't make it moral. Or Roe versus Wade, or the recent decision. So you can't think, well, what's the law of the land say? If I just follow the law of the land, that would be my highest authority. So a true repentance needs to start in the mind where we say, it's in your sight that I have sinned. And we have to come to the place of saying, God, your word is the highest authority. Now, what does your word say, and how am I living? And we put ourselves under the word of God. The word of God is our authority. That is part of repentance. Now, the second thing is the will. In verse 4, he says, I have sinned and done what is evil. I have sinned, period. He doesn't, there's no but. He doesn't say, but, you know, that you know, she should have been in her house, and she was throwing herself at me, and it, I mean, he's, he doesn't do any of that stuff. Do you remember how his predecessor Saul responded when the prophet Samuel came to him and said, what are you doing? Why, why, why do I hear all these sheep? Didn't God tell you to wipe out every living thing of the Amalekites, and why is the king right here? And then, and then Saul starts giving, well, but I just, they were really good sheep, and we wanted to do an offering for God, and you know, and it, and then, and then Samuel hacks the king down with a sword right there to make a statement for Saul. The will, you have free will. And repentance means saying, I did the wrong thing. There's no, there's no but after that. I did it. God's word says this, I did that. That is what I did. That's taking responsibility for it. And I wonder, am I still making excuses? So the repentant person The repentant mind agrees with God's word, and the repentant will takes ownership of its decisions. And then the third thing is the heart. He does say in verse four, I have done evil. He gets that it's evil. And in verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That prayer, inviting God to heal the heart, is about recognizing that our heart is deceitful, It's about growing a God-given distaste for the residual sin. It's getting to the place where the Apostle Paul gets in Romans 7 when he goes, I I do the very thing I don't want to do. I know it's wrong, and I go there, and he starts to hate the very sin that that is still in him. But here's the trick. The repentant heart hates the sin, but not the self. That's really important. Because if we start to hate ourselves because we're sinners then we are not hearing the other part of the gospel, which is that God loves you. God loves us. He loves us so much, he redeemed us. He loves us, he came for us. That we are that important. So there's both the misery of man and the majesty of man. That we are so valuable to him that he would come on a rescue mission to save us. So the the repentant heart hates the sin, but not the self. The repentant heart takes ownership of decisions and the repentant mind agrees with God's word. Now think about your situation. Are you more of a repentant person or just remorseful? When you say, I'm sorry, is it, I'm sorry that you felt that way? I'm sorry that that happened to you? Or is it, I have sinned. My heart has sin in it, and it got the best of me this time. I have done this. Now, where does the power come from to be able to live that way? Well, David says, according to your steadfast love, have mercy on me in verse 1 of of Psalm 51. According to your steadfast love. It's the love of God that empowers David to be able to be like that. To be that kind of a person who immediately goes to humility. He knows how much God loves him. He's experienced God's love. He's heard about God's love. God has been so kind to him that even when he is uh, failing, he knows that God sent Nathan. He knows that God loves him. It's the love and power of God, in our case, through the cross. We see it perfectly in that passage from John 3.16, which is why it's been used to summarize the gospel, that God so loved the world he sent his only son, that whoever believes would not be condemned. That is so powerful. Now, back to where I started with family feud. Hypocrisy is the number one reason, I think, that people on the outside look in at the church and say, I don't want that. I don't want to be part of that all Christians are hypocrites, they say. But what David does is he goes on in that psalm, after asking for God to give him a a clean heart and renew a right spirit and to to restore his joy, he says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He goes right from being judged for a massive failure, asking God for healing, and then he's ready to teach others. And the thing is, because of the way that he repented, he became an object lesson in repentance. He taught others. He became so well known for his repentance that that's what people think of, more than they think of, let's say, the David and Goliath or some of his other successes. He becomes known as a guy who cares most about having the heart of God. That's what matters to him. A couple Saturdays ago, my wife and I did a triathlon up in Fernandina Beach, a short one. And which was long for us, and I was not in shape. It had been a while, since i 10 years since I'd done one of these. And we were lamenting as to whether or not we'd be able to finish it. And I was saying to Heather, listen, if we panic in the, in the ocean and have to crawl to the beach, we still get the t-shirt. <laughs> they give it to you when you sign up. We are triathletes. It doesn't mean you have to finish and win. That does not matter. We can be honest about being out of shape. We can enter into this thing. I can wear the t-shirt with pride. I don't have to win it. I'm not being a hypocrite to wear that t-shirt. It doesn't say winner. It says the triathlon I entered into. And there's courage in just entering into the very race. I don't see it as hypocritical whatsoever for someone to say, God loves me, and I'm a broken sinner, and I really want to have a heart like his and learn to walk in his ways. If we become famous for our repentance, more so than our successes, people on the outside will look in and say, I can embrace that. I could see myself becoming a Christian and being like that. That seems attainable to me. It seems honest. It's honest to God, and I would consider it. So for us, repentant mind agrees with God's word. A repentant will takes ownership of decisions, and a repentant heart hates sin but not the self. And the power for this to happen is the very love of God that we see in Jesus Christ who went and died for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for the hope of the gospel. I thank you for the call to discipleship. And I do thank you for the example of your servant, David. I pray that you would speak your goodness over us, that we would know your love, and that, Lord, we would be quick to repent when we realize that we've stepped off the path, have mercy on us, Lord, according to your unfailing love. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.